Gospels, please turn me to Second Samuel. Second uh, Samuel chapter fifteen, uh, all the way to Second Samuel chapter sixteen, verse fourteen. Uh, unfortunately, due to the length of the passage, we won't read it today. But I do want you to have your text open before you, because I will be referring to it uh, every now and then. Um, in this passage, it's quite easy to understand the flow of it. In the first section of chapter 15, we see Absalom's conspiracy. Uh, we see how the narrator uh, describes the context for us, describing how for four years, Absalom successfully planned and pulled off a coup wherein he stole the kingdom away from David. And then in chapter 15, verse 13, all the way to chapter 16, verse 14, the narrator almost slows down this, the pace of the narrative and describes five encounters uh, that David has as he flees um, Absalom. Uh, but before we jump into it, let's quickly pray again and ask the Lord to help us as we consider this passage together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with the firm conviction that your word, as your word says, is more desirable than gold, even fine gold, that it is sweeter than the honeycomb. And as we come to your word, as we consider what you say to us, we pray that our desire would be for your word, that it would be sweet to our souls, so that as your word is preach to us, it would revive our souls, it would make us wise, it would rejoice our hearts and enlighten our eyes, so that we would be a people who walk in your ways and enjoy your blessings, knowing that we don't deserve it in and of ourselves, but that it is ours through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Uh, the pastor David Murray, in one of his sermons on Mark, I had this question that he asked his congregation. I think it's a helpful question because it shook me a little bit. He asked this question, what is your greatest need? What is your greatest need? If you had to write your greatest need on a little piece of paper, what would you write? Would you write perhaps a, a financial concern, a relationship trouble that you're in, maybe affliction that has bombarded you, or, or family tension or work? I'm sure if you ask 10 different people, you'd get 10 different answers to what their greatest need is. Well, Murray suggests, quite shockingly, that there's only one right answer to that question. Our greatest need, he says, is faith. Our greatest need above every other need is faith. Now, that shouldn't actually be too shocking to us. We, we know, after all, Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 11.6 reminds us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Even Paul says, Romans 14.23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. See, our greatest need, if we're honest, is greater faith. But let's be honest, at times our faith is kind of weak. Our faith is often stagnant and quite inactive, quite drowsy, you might say. But perhaps you're like me and you find yourself praying Mark 9, 24, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Now, I think we pray those kind of prayers because we recognize that often we fall prey to a spiritual drowsiness. A spiritual drowsiness that leaves our faith weak an inactive, passive, and quite vulnerable. 
I know that's the case because the Bible actually tells us to stay awake, to be alert, to be sober-minded. See, the threat of spiritual drowsiness is, is real. The threat of your faith going cold and falling asleep is serious. In fact, may I suggest to you, that's where we find David in our passage of this morning. David in the section of 2 Samuel here has seemingly fallen asleep. This man of faith, once so active, once so fervent, has fallen prey to a spiritual drowsiness. In these passages, David is passive, he's inactive, he's uninvolved, so much so that his kingdom is stolen from him right from underneath his nose. You see that in 2 Samuel 15, verse 1 to 12, Absalom successfully orchestrates a, a coup. He, he manages to steal the hearts of God's people. Just look at that very briefly, how he does that. Does that. Firstly, he goes portraying himself as an exalted royal. You see that in verse 1. You see him riding in, in a chariot with horses and, and 50 bodyguards. That's an ostentatious display of, of power and wealth. He wants everyone to know that he's royalty. But that's not all. Secondly, he pray, portrays himself as an empathetic royal. In verse 2 to 4, we see how he, he rises early every morning to meet people, to, to help them, to solve their problems, to help them seek justice. Why? Because he wants them to know he's a, he's a royal who cares. He even says, oh, if I were king of Israel, I would help you, to paraphrase. He's an empathetic royal, he wants us to know. But thirdly, he portrays himself as an enduring royal. In verse 5, he drops all royal protocol. Instead of letting people bow to him, he grabs them, he, he kisses them, he holds them. He, he wants them to know that he's one of them. He embraces them. He's an enduring royal. And in such a way, verse, one, verse 6 says, Absalom stole the hearts of, of Israel. And according to verse 7, he did this for four years. And the question is, as you read that section, verse 1 to 12, you ask yourself, where is David? Where is the shepherd of God's people? That's what the shepherd is meant to do. He's a king who shepherds the people, who knows them, who, who cares for them. They go to him for justice, for care. He's supposed to know his people, but they, he doesn't know them. He doesn't know that their hearts are running after his son. He doesn't know that they have turned away from him. Even in verse 7 to 12, after Absalom influences the, the nation and his influence spreads across the nation, Absalom sets a plan into place to, to finally overthrow his king and his, his father and anoint himself as king. And David, we're told, just believes his story and, and sends him off in peace. Verse 9, go in peace, he says to his son. And the irony is, of course, Absalom is going to make war. Absalom is going to anoint himself and he's going to come back and cut off his father's head. That's what he wants to do. Do you see the picture you actually have here of David? In comparison to Absalom, who's very busy, very active, very hard at work to overthrow his father, the father, David, 
seems asleep. He seems inactive, passive, uninvolved. Whether it is through sin, you know, we see he's already sinned, we've seen that already. Whether through negligence or, or whether through just a misplaced love for his son, David has fallen prey to a spiritual drowsiness. And, and so sometimes we do as well. Our faith falls asleep. We neglect our duties. And we allow our hearts to go after the ways of this world. Well, praise God, dear friends, because God is not content to leave His people in a state of spiritual drowsiness. In fact, if needs be, He will he bring heartbreaking trials to wake us up from our slumber and to reawaken our, our sleepy faith. That's what you see in verse 13 to 17. David is made aware of what's happened. He, he learns that the nation has turned away from him. And with a shattered heart, he finally sees that his son has, been betray has betrayed him. And, and realize, dear friends, it's that heartbreaking trial that God uses to wake David up from his spiritual drowsiness. It is as David flees from Jerusalem that we see David's faith reawaken. It's as he runs for his life that the man of faith that we grew to love in 1 Samuel it's as he runs that we see this man reappear. Uh, listen to the commentator David Firth who, who helpfully explains this. Uh, he says this, The move from, for David from Jerusalem to into exile was geographically and theologically significant. It was in the wilderness that he, we saw David at his faithful best. As he returns there, a series of encounters see him gradually reclaiming the reality of that faith. If you don't believe comment, the commentator, just remember what we saw in Psalm 3. Psalm 3 was written and to, is told to us as he fled from Absalom. And there you see David's faith kick into place as he realizes that the nation has turned to him. He again renews his faith in God. Despite people being, despite being surrounded by foes, despite having people telling him that God has abandoned him, he sets his faith in God. Verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. See, as David runs in 2 Samuel 15 and 16, we see how, David, how God wakes David up from his spiritual slumber, and the result is David not merely walks, but runs by faith again. This is my prayer for this morning, that God would reawaken our faith. That God would, through whatever means, wake us up from our spiritual slumber so that we would again walk and run by faith. I, 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 want, you to see, I want you to see five realities of David's faith this morning from this particular passage. The first thing I want you to see is a faith that remembers God's faithfulness. A faith that remembers God's faithfulness. In verse 18 to 23, as David has his men pass by him out of Jerusalem, we have recorded for us the first person that David encounters and talks with, and it's Ittai the Gittite. Uh, and who is that? He's a, he's a Palestinian, or a Philistine, sorry, a Philistine mercenary. Uh, look at verse 19 to 20. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? 
Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go I know not where? Go back, take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. You can imagine that David at this point is, is quite despondent. He doesn't even, he, he, although many people leave him, he recognizes that, that, that only a small part of people leave with him. Although the nation has turned from him, these people that are leaving with him pale in comparison. Not only is he, is he despondent because of that, he's despondent so much so that he recognizes Absalom here as king. He, he calls Absalom king. He, he apparently doesn't even recognize his own kingship anymore. And so David here is, is quite understandably despondent. He is at his lowest here. It may I suggest to you that as Itai comes to David, Itai is an encouragement to David's faith. As one commentator notes, Itai is an island of fidelity in a sea of treachery. Despite being told to stay behind, Itai, this Philistine, this foreigner, confesses his loyalty to David. And he confesses it with covenant language. Look at verse 21. But Itai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. Not only is Itai confessing the fact that David is king, not Absalom, but I suggest you Itai is reminding David of God's faithfulness. How is he doing that? Well, what Itai says here parallels what we find in Ruth. In Ruth 1, when, when Naomi tells Ruth to go back to her land, she's a foreigner, tells her to go back, how does Ruth respond? Verse 16 and 17, Do not urge him to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die... I will die, and there I will be buried. That's essentially what Itai tells David, isn't it? Where you live, I live. Where you die, I die. Itai, like, and even not just that, Itai reflects something of Boaz in chapter 3. When Boaz commits to, to care for Ruth, he says this in 3.13, As the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Again, that's similar to what Itai says. Like Boaz, like Ruth, Itai invokes God's name and he commits himself to David. Now remember who Boaz and Ruth are. They are David's great-grandparents. And David no doubt knew all about them. He knew about their wonderful story. And so I suggest you, David's faith here is being encouraged. because He's being reminded of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness not just to his great-grandparents, but God's faithfulness to him even now in the loyalty of a servant like Itai. When David wants to send Itai away with God's steadfast love and faithfulness, it's David who's actually reminded of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Dear friends, what a wonderful lesson that is for us. Did you struggle sometimes with weak and despondent faith? Did you find yourself in David's situation where you feel abandoned? You feel alone. You feel like no one cares. All your friends, all your companions have abandoned you. Well, if you do, remember God's faithfulness. 
Perhaps it's a place that, that our faith flounders and, and grows weak and sleepy because we've taken our eyes off of God's faithfulness. Realize God's own faithfulness is what should uphold our faith. Peter says this, 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will, whether that suffering is fleeing from your son who wants to take off your head, or whether that is suffering in the workplace or the family, or sickness, entrust their souls to a faithful creator. A faithful creator, Psalm 146 verse 6 says, who keeps faith forever. Dear dear Christian, don't forget your God. He who calls you is faithful, and so therefore set yourself to trust Him. Put your faith in Him and see and rejoice in all the tokens of His faithfulness. God has given us many tokens of His faithfulness. Perhaps it's a, it's a faithful spouse. Perhaps a faithful friend or parent. Perhaps even it's, it's the church. As we relate to one another and care for one another, as we are even at the means of grace like the table and we're reminded of God's faithfulness. See, we need to see if that faith remembers God's faithfulness. And as it does it, it grows. It strengthens so that's the first thing I want you to see, faith that remembers God's faith. And secondly, I want you to see faith that rests in God's will. Faith that rests in God's will. Verse 24 to 29, we find another encounter, and this time it's with Zadok and Abiathar, the Levites. And for David's encouragement again, they too reveal loyalty to David, and they even tell him that they'll bring the Ark of the Covenant along with him. Now, the prospect of having the Ark of the Covenant with you is, is quite attractive. As you see in 1 Samuel 4, many people cheated the Ark uh, superstitiously. They thought that if you bring the Ark with you, you can guarantee God's blessing. That, that's not David, though. David knows that you can't use God and his things superstitiously, thinking that somehow you can manipulate God into blessing you. No, David knows that salvation belongs to God, Psalm 3 was saying. Salvation doesn't belong superstitiously through the God's things. No, He grants favor. I love the way that Dale Rolf Lewis, sorry, Dale Rolf Davis puts it. He says, David knows that God's blessing does not depend on whether he has God's furniture, but on whether he has God's favor. And so David wisely sends back Zadok with the ark back to Jerusalem. In fact, listen to what he says in verse 25 to 26. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the ark of God back to the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see, it, see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. We actually see your David's faith kick in because he leaves himself in the hands of God. He's not trying to manipulate God according to his will. No, he, he rests himself to whatever God desires. Uh, the commentator Baldwin is right when she says, For David, it was an act of faith to send the ark back. At the same time, it was an act of surrender to whatever the Lord saw fit to do. That's why I say faith rests in God's will. 
Faith isn't self-seeking, but self-surrendering. Faith says, your will be done, not mine. Church, I wonder at times, perhaps our faith is weak because we've turned that around. Our faith languishes because we're all about ourselves and our own wills, our own desires. Our faith is weak because we're self-seeking and not self-surrendering. Well, perhaps for our weakened faith to grow, we need to again rest in God's grace. Rest in His will. Submit to Him and whatever He desires. Again, Dale Wolf Davis would say it this way. This is faith with no gimmicks, no superstitions, no rabbit foot religion, no conning God by pilfering the ark. No, it is faith that doesn't attempt to use God for its own ends and means, but it's faith that rests in God. God's will, and following that wherever that may be. Dear friend, is there an area in your life where you need to stop trying to manipulate God? Is there an area in your life where you need to actually start surrendering? You need to lay your desire behind and follow God. Perhaps it's in worldly pleasures that consume your time. TV shows and entertainment that robs you of joy. Perhaps it's ungodly friendships, ungodly relationships that, that, that de-steal the life of your faith away. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray, Matthew 6, 9 to 10, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Since as we yield ourselves to God's kingdom, His rule in our lives, His desire for us, that we know what true blessing is. In fact, I would say that the path to satisfaction is in resting in God's will. Remember what he says in 6.33, Matthew 6.33, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That is, seek God's rule, His ways, His paths, and all these other things, these things that you want, these things that are good, all these things will be added to you. Either added to you or changed in your eyes. Because you seek the things of God, not the things of the flesh. May I suggest to you what our faith needs, what our weakened faith needs, is to again rely upon God's will, not self. The third thing I want you to see this morning is that faith not only rests in God's will, but faith relies on God's help. Faith relies on God's help as in verse 30 to 37, as David crosses the Kidron Valley, he's weeping, and the people with him are also weeping. They're crying. And as he goes up, he's told that Ahilophel, one of his trusted counselors, has also betrayed him. And David, at that time of, of distress and anxiety over a friend, a counselor that has left him and joined his son, he prays this. Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahilophel into foolishness. Now, someone has said helplessness united with faith produces prayer. Without faith, there can be no prayer. Well, that's what we see here. David in his helplessness prays to God for a help. It's an expression of his faith, his reawakened faith. And lo and behold, just as David prays, God immediately answers his prayer. Because as he, enters, as he ascends onto the Mount of Olives, he encounters Hushai, the archite. 
I'm glad I don't have sons, because that sounds like an awesome name. Hushai the Archite. He is a friend of David. He's also a trusted counselor. And it is through Hushai that God will actually save David from Absalom and Ahilophel. But, but the point for us is this. Faith throws itself upon God for help because it knows that God answers prayer. At this point, David is reminded of this, and, and as he is reminded of this, as he is reminded that God answers prayer, his faith is strengthened. Psalm 3 verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from, my holy, from his holy hill. Dear friends, again, I think our faith is often weak because it's not just self-seeking, but so self-sufficient. It becomes so self-sufficient and trusting in its own endeavors. Let me suggest to you, faith is very difficult for competent, self-sufficient men and women. Why? Because it's easy to do things yourself. No, what we see here of true faith is faith looks to God for help. It trusts God. It goes to God in prayer. Now, don't misunderstand me. Relying upon God's help doesn't negate our planning or our effort because even in this section, we see David's planning. In verse 27 to 28 with Zadok and in 34 to 36 with Hushai, we see David's faith take action because he sets up a network of spies to inform him what's happening in Jerusalem. He sends Hushai to, to befriend Absalom and to be an informant. And he even sets up Zadok and Abithur's sons to, to bring him back news. But unlike before, David here isn't sitting back passively. No, he's engaged, he's involved, he's, he's making plans, he's living by faith. Faith that relies upon God, but faith that doesn't sit back idly. Faith that is active and alive. Remember what James says, 2.18, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. I'd suggest that's what we see here. David is living again by faith again, faith that works. Faith that works, yes, but it depends upon God in the process. Uh, dear friends, again, let me ask you the question, are there areas where your faith needs to be more active? Are there areas where your faith needs to start living again? You have faith, you believe in God, but it's like unstirred sugar at the bottom of a cup of coffee. It's there, the sugar's there, the coffee's just very bitter. Well, your faith is there, but your Christianity is bitter. Why? Because your faith is unstirred. Perhaps it is the case that we need to again jump up in action, believe God, trust His promises and work for Him. Perhaps you need to wake from your spiritual slumber and perhaps stir your faith into action. Serve Him. So I want you to see faith relies upon God's help. Fourthly, I want you to see faith that receives God's provision. Faith that receives God's provision. Chapter 16, verse 1 to 4, we have David encountering Zeba, the Saulite. That's just saying someone who is from Saul's house. Now, I must admit, there's some questions about Zeba. Uh, David even has his questions. He asks, question, he asks Zeba two questions. Why are you here and where is Mephibosheth, his master? And Zeba answers and says that, that his master, just like all the others, has abandoned David. 
Now, most commentators point out that there's something fishy about this Zebo guy. Uh, for one, his story doesn't hold up. He says that uh, Mephibosheth abandoned David because he wanted to take David's throne. That doesn't hold up. No way that Absalom would allow that. And even later on in 2 Samuel 19, Mephibosheth says himself that Zebo lied. So most commentators rightly don't trust Zeba. But as a result, most of them criticize David here of making a bad decision. I, I actually don't agree with that interpretation. Yes, we must question Zeba. Of all the encounters that David has, only this encounter doesn't mention God's name. Doesn't mention God. Yet we're really told all that, all we're told in this narrative is that Zeba is loyal to David and meets David in his need with food and drink. Ziba might have ulterior motives, but nothing is said of it. He may even have evil intentions, but what he means for evil, to quote Joseph, God apparently means for good. And that's the point here, I think. God in his providence supplies David in his need. David and his family, his men have just fled from their homes. They're emotionally overwhelmed. They're no doubt weary and tired and hungry and thirsty. Well, here is God meeting them in their point of need. Supplying them what they need when they need it. David understood this because even in Psalm 3 verse 5, David says, I lay down and slept. I woke again. Why? For the Lord sustained me. Herein lies the lessons for us. Faith looks to God's providence and receives His provision. Faith looks God's providence and receives his, his bountiful provisions. If it's true that God is good to all, Psalm 145 verse 9, and if it is true that, that God gives life and breath and everything to everyone, Acts 17 verse 5, and if it is true that God sends down every good and perfect gift from above, if all of those things are true, then faith must set itself to see God's goodness and to, to receive it. It must receive it as needed provision at the right time. Dear friends, perhaps your faith is weak. Perhaps it's frail because you've taken your eyes off of God's provision. Because you're not seeing how God actually has provided in your need. If you know my daughter, Sophia, or three-year-old, she's very lively and active. You've seen her chasing the chickens around she just recently started sitting down quietly and drawing in. Oh, God's provision. <laughs> Faith sees the smallest thing as God's grace because God is good. Even in dark providences, even in suffering, even in trial, even in those things, God has given small tokens of grace. And faith sets itself to see those things and is nourished by those things. Final thing I want you to see in this encounter and the last encounter is faith that recognizes God's discipline. In chapter 16, verse 5 to 14, uh, David lastly encounters Shimei, another Saulite. And unlike before, everyone showed loyalty to David. Shimei, however, curses David. He comes out pelting not just rocks at David and his men, but pelting insults and cursing David. He calls him a worthless man, a, a man of blood, who's bearing the consequences for his sin. 
And unlike his men and unlike Abishai, David doesn't retaliate but accepts Shimei's cursing. Uh, look at verse 10 and 11. David says, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to. So just as David rested in God's will, now he accepts and recognizes God's discipline. Why? Because he knows Shimei's got a point. He is facing the consequences for his sin. Not the sin against Saul, but his sin against God and Bathsheba. See, David recognizes that he's under God's discipline here, and he accepts it. And he not just accepts it, he accepts it with hope. Look at verse 12. David says, It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, and that the Lord will repay me with the good for this cursing today. See, David has confidence in God because God disciplines his children. He disciplines them in love, and therefore there is even good to be found in discipline. Isn't that what Hebrews 12, 10 tells us, right? He disciplines us for our good. And see, David here shows us how we are to bear God's discipline. We are to bear it with faith in God our Father, faith that recognizes that discipline, and faith that yields to it with hope for the good. So see, when we face the consequences of our sin, when we come under God's rightful discipline for our sin, that isn't the time to throw away your faith. That isn't the time to abandon your faith. No, that's the time to actually renew your faith. Because God is your Father and He loves you. And therefore, He's disciplining you. Kaiten Boone illustrated this way. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. No, you simply trust the engineer. Well, dear friends, in the same way, we ought to trust God even when we are disciplined, knowing that He loves us and that there is even good in discipline. And so, dear friends, dear church, as we close this morning, the question really for us is this, as we consider David's reawakened faith, the, the question for us is this, what is the state of your faith? As you sit here this morning, do you see something of David's faith in you? Do you have a faith that is awakened and alive, active? Do you see something of yourself here? Do you see the same sparks of life? Do you, in faith, remember God's faithfulness, finding encouragement in the fact that God is faithful to you? Do you put your faith in God, resting in God's will for your life, surrendering yourself to His will, wherever that may lead? Do you, in faith, rely upon God's help and pray for His help, even as you work and labor doing so, depending on Him? Do you, in faith, receive God's many provisions, knowing that He is good, do you even in faith recognize his discipline and accept it as good? Is that what your faith looks like? Do you have faith that is awake and active? Do you have faith that not only walks but runs after God? Or is your faith still asleep? 
Are you in a state of spiritual drowsiness? Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't even have faith. You're dead, not just asleep. Well, dear friends, know this. Your greatest need, our greatest need is faith. Our greatest need is greater faith. Now, one Puritan put it this way. Little faith will bring your soul to heaven. Great faith will bring heaven to your soul. Do you not want that? You don't want God's blessing, God's faith. You don't want to enjoy more of God. Or desire to have greater faith. Well, how do you grow in faith? Well, not by putting your faith in David, right? Not by looking at David's faith and saying, oh, I want that. You can learn lessons from that. And you can know how you need to grow faith by learning those lessons. But ultimately, we grow in faith by looking to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage, it's a marvelous passage. It's, it's wonderful to see the similarities between David and, and Jesus. Just as David descended the Mount of Olives in anguish, so did Jesus. Remember how he went up the Mount of Olives in, in Gethsemane, how he wept in anguish, even sweating blood? Just as David in distress submitted to God's will, so did Jesus. Remember how he prayed, Lord, not my will? But yours be done, yielding himself to the cross. Just as David had the nation turn on him, going after another, so too did Christ. Now the nation chose a sinner, a, a thief above Jesus. How they said, crucify him, crucify him. Just as David had people weeping for him as he left Jerusalem. Just as David had that, so too did Christ. Weeping because their, their hopes were dashed. But just as David was scorned and cursed as a worthless king, so did Christ. Remember at, at the cross how they mocked him as, Are you the, the Son of God? Are you the Christ? Can you not save yourself? See so these wonderful parallels between David and, and Jesus, but there's one key difference. David experienced all of this anguish, all of this pain, all of this suffering, all of this trial for his sin. Jesus experienced all of that for us. Took our place. He, he took our sin on him and he felt its anguish. He was led outside of Jerusalem and, and killed outside of Jerusalem. And his blood is what saves us. His body what, that sanctifies us. And, and so this is the object of our faith. This is to whom we look if you want greater faith, look more at your greater Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to run the race set before us with faith, faith that looks to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Why? Because it's only as you have greater views of Christ that you will have greater faith. And so may God, by His grace, allow us to grow in grace even this morning. Uh, I wasn't going to close in this prayer, but this morning as I was praying, uh, I saw this particular Puritan prayer, and I want to close by praying this for us. Let's pray together. My God, I bless Thee that Thou hast given me the eye of faith to see Thee as Father, to know Thee as my covenant God, to experience Thy love planted within me. Thy bounteous goodness has helped me believe, but my faith is weak and wavering. Its light dim, its steps tottering, its increase slow, its backsliding frequent. 
I should be scaling the heavens, but instead it lies groveling in the dust. The Lord fanned this divine spark into glowing flame. When faith sleeps, my heart becomes an unclean thing. The fount of every loathsome desire, the cage of unclean lusts, all fluttering to escape. The noxious tree of deadly fruit, the open wayside of earthly tears. Lord, awake my faith to put forth its strength until all of heaven fills my soul and all impurity is cast away. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.